Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your word, particularly the word in the Gospels, where we can actually hear your voice and, uh, and witness you in action from a distance and ask questions and be filled with who you are. We want to follow in the dust of your footsteps. We want to be your students, and would you be more our Lord today, more our teacher, more our Savior than when we entered? Amen. If you're just joining us today, you've been gone for a while or whatever, uh, we have been walking through one of Jesus's most famous, most well-known teachings in the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we have been going through the Beatitudes, which is just these fantastic teachings of Jesus, such good news, and you know, the kind of the go-to, the beginning of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And no matter where you are in life, when you start to feel distant or far from God, you can say, I'm feeling poor in spirit. And you can turn back and Jesus is right there to embrace you. So all of this Sermon on the Mount is based on good news. And today we get into this kind of hinge section of the sermon, which is a lot different than the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are all like, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and, and then last week we got this section where it's like, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and we talked about how that's a good thing. Um, if, yeah, you're familiar with ancient Near Eastern thoughts on salt and light, those are really good things, and so that's, that's a blessing. And then today, we get to this section of scripture that's Matthew 5, 17 through 20, where it says, now, <laughs> don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, right? I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all has been accomplished. Whoever then annuls the least one of these commandments and teaches other people to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who keeps and teaches these law and prophets, these commandments, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, amen, amen, or truly I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a little heavier. <laughs> the blessed are the poor in spirit, right? All right. Let's shift gears a little bit. The first professional sports team in Seattle to win a national championship, right? It wasn't the Seahawks or the Sonics or the Rain or the Storm or the Sounders. No, in 1917, the Seattle Metropolitans won the Stanley Cup, the hockey team. Yeah, and they were the first American hockey team to win the Stanley Cup. Who knew? I knew, but okay, but anyway. <laughs> But by the time I was born, you know, in like the mid-70s and I'm growing up, professional hockey wasn't even a thing. Like, it wasn't ever talked about in my family. I mean, sorry, Dan, it was a thing. It wasn't a thing in Seattle, right? It, it was, we used to go to the amateur games to watch fights, but we didn't know anything about hockey. And so I knew nothing about hockey. I know about as much about hockey as I do about rugby and cricket, which is like nothing. And so sometimes when I'm talking to my friends who know hockey and they have hockey background, I feel like I'm an outsider Listening in on a conversation that's not really for me, I'm just kind of hearing what somebody else is interested in, right? That is, until now. 
See, now that the Seattle Kraken have arrived and the NHL is in Seattle once again, I'm starting to get more interested and involved in that conversation. I realize that I'm coming to this sport from the outside, but at the same time, those who have walked in the journey of hockey for a long time are kind of like welcoming me, welcoming me in. Like they're enthusiastic to teach me about icing and offsides and all of the stuff, right? And in fact, if you want to know more about hockey, Dan Trollson is your man, I'm seriously. Resident expert, talk to Dan. In a similar way, the passage today about the law and the prophets and whether or not Jesus is somehow teaching things that people care about the law and the prophets might be offended by, like, it seems like a really an outsider conversation, right? When was the last time you thought to yourself, gosh, I wonder if I'm falling the Torah to the T. I wonder if I'm following the law or the prophets like the first century Pharisees prescribed. Do you ever think that to yourself as you're going to bed? Ah, Probably not. So we read that passage about the law and the prophets and these things won't pass away till heaven. You know, it kind of feels like I'm an outsider listening in on a conversation that doesn't appear to be relevant to me. But what the passage is saying is that because Jesus has come, We who were once outsiders looking in are now invited into the conversation. Hockey came to Seattle. Now I'm going to get interested in hockey because I'm a sports fan. I can't help it. And Jesus has come to earth. Now I'm going to pay attention to the things that were interesting to Jesus that seemed to matter to Jesus. Now let me just say this as we dig into this text. As a follower of Jesus myself, And as a preacher of scripture, I take seriously that my job is to be faithful to the text, number one, and to be a bridge builder between the context of scripture and the context of this particular congregation, because you're the ones that I love and I serve. And that means that while it is required that I do the academic work of evaluating, like, why faithful Jewish readers might have been offended at Jesus and his teachings and his life, And I have to know, I have to brush up on the various interpretive options for what it means to fulfill the law and the prophets. What I'm actually going to do in this preaching moment is to not give a seminar class like like you would get at seminary. If you want to talk after church about all that stuff, I'll talk your ear off. But what I want to do in this preaching moment is to focus on the heart of the passage as it pertains to us. 21st century largely non-Jewish people, if my assumptions are correct. How does this passage, which is in the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel means good news, how is this passage, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, good news for us? Well, I think that it is relevant to us and to all generations for two reasons, and these are the points that I'm going to, to kind of tease out. Here they are. First, this passage shines a spotlight on Jesus. Who he is, what he says that he's done for the world. So if you're here visiting today and you're just like, I don't, I really, I'm on the outside looking in. Let me just tell you that this passage will reveal a lot about who Jesus is. If you're curious about Jesus, this is gonna say a lot. Maybe you're here and you're already a worshiper of Jesus. You have been for some time. Well, this passage will give you more reason to worship him. Okay, so that's the first thing I think that this passage does for us. Second, because of what Jesus claims to do in this passage, 
we now have access to a whole new fulfillment of living, to a whole new level of fulfillment in life. And now I'm going to spend the remainder of the preaching moment teasing out these two, po- these two points from the text, okay? All right, so Jesus tells us, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. And then he says something really interesting. You might guess that someone would say, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I came to uphold them or to enforce them. That's what a lot of the teachers who are contemporary with Jesus were doing. Here are the law and the prophets. Here's how I'm going to teach you how to, how to keep them and to enforce them and to tell you when you're doing it wrong. But Jesus says, I came to fulfill them. And I want to suggest, and I'm not the only one, a lot of scholars say the same thing, that this key to understanding this passage is in that word fulfillment. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now before we understand what he means by fulfill, we need to understand what he means by the law and the prophets, right? What are the law and the prophets? Oftentimes when I think of law, I don't know if you're the same way, I tend to think of rules and regulations I, think, I tend to think of like, because I love books, so I think of a law book. Michael, do you have an office like this? Michael's a lawyer. Um, it, like, I think of like an office with rows of books that might be a little dusty, and then there's, there's precedent and regulations and stipulations and code, and you go to those when you have a situation and you need to know what the rules are. But law in Hebrew thought wasn't that way. It wasn't just a list of commandments. Of course, you've got things like the Ten Commandments, and you've got laws outlined in books like Leviticus. If you've ever made your way through Leviticus, you see just like a lot of stipulations, right? But law, as understood by Jewish people, is the story of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. It's the story of God's intention to work in and through Israel to bless the entire world so that people would know God's loyal love and faithfulness. So the law in Hebrew thought is not mostly the Ten Commandments and stipulations. It includes the entire narrative section. So Genesis is the law. It's all, Genesis is like full of stories. Exodus is the law. There's tons of stories in Exodus. Deuteronomy, Numbers, all these stories are part of the law. And the prophets, the prophets are God's anointed agents to interpret the law so that each generation, uh, people could walk uh, in faithfulness to God and his covenant ways that's revealed in, in the stories. So to put it simply, The phrase, the law and the prophets, means all of God's promises and interactions with people in Scripture. It was a a shorthand way of saying all of what we know as the Old Testament. That's the law and the prophets. You want to know who Jesus is? He's the one who has come on our behalf to fulfill what no human could fulfill. So Jesus came not to abolish all of those stories and promises of God, but to fulfill them in his life and in his ministry and his death and resurrection. And this is where it can get confusing for us. Listen to this line. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke 
shall pass from the law until all of it has been accomplished. Now, because of some, frankly, bad interpretations and even worse depictions of books like Revelation and Daniel in popular media and film and literature, this passage might sound like like we're bound to every nuance of the law just as it is written until the end of the world. Until the end of the world, till heaven and earth pass away. And here's the problem. Until heaven and earth pass away doesn't refer to the end of our planet or to the end of time as we know it. What it refers to is what's known in, all throughout the Old Testament as the end of the age the end of the age. That is the end of the age before the Messiah would come and the beginning of a new age, the age of the Spirit. And after the Messiah has accomplished his mission, it is the age of the Spirit. So images like the sun being blackened and stars falling from the heavens and rumors of war, all of that is stock imagery for the end of the age. And guess what? If you read a depiction of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, you get literal images like the sun being darkened, the dead coming up out of the grave. You get the end of one age and the beginning of the age to come. Now look at how this points to Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's God in the flesh, come to inaugurate a new possibility of thriving in life. So if we are now in this age of the Holy Spirit, the age of the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, what does that mean for following the law and the prophets? Why is it, for example, that in most of our churches we teach you should love your enemies, but we don't teach a prohibition on wearing clothes made out of two different kinds of material? I'm pretty sure this is microfiber with some cotton in there, I mean, I'm breaking the law and the prophets if it was to the T, right? Why do we hold to, for example, biblical sexual ethics, but not to the laws that would exclude people from worship if you had a pimple (laughs) or a skin lesion or any other number of bodily fluids that are kind of gross? But that's all in the Bible. Why do we do one and not the other? Well, it's complicated. But there is a difference between ethics and laws. And this has been helpful for me. Think of ethics as a set of ideals. It's the way things ought to be. God has ethics. And despite what our opinions are, if God is really God, then the ethics of God would be the ethics that are true. Like if if God is God and God has ethics, then those are the ethics we ought to follow. Like it doesn't really matter our opinions. So God has ethics, and we know from Scripture that one of God's ethics is to love one's neighbor as themselves, right? That's one of God's ethics. Here's the problem. (laughs) Maybe I'm just speaking for me, but I'm going to take a stab and say, we're a pretty insecure species, (laughs) right? Humans, we're pretty insecure, and frankly, that oftentimes leads to selfishness. I'm a selfish person. when when I dig down in, and maybe you are too. And and so the ethic of love neighbor as self seems straightforward, like that's a great ideal. But then we begin to rationalize, well like, who's my neighbor? And what is love? Like let's let's, let's nuance that out. 
Um, the other issue is that we're so kind of broken, like my perspective, my perspective is just off, like my perspective is only mine, and I know that it's warped. I, I'm, at least I'm that self-aware. And so when you and I, assuming you have a warped perspective too, your definition of love might not be the same as God's. So now, loving your neighbor as yourself, this great ethic gets really muddy and complicated, doesn't it? So if we allow the ethic of love to remain up in the air and generalized and subjective as I might define it, it doesn't really do much to help us move in the right direction. Enter laws. Laws are are given to give structure and form and concreteness to ethics. So in scripture, God gives laws about putting up guardrails on your second story. He's the first OSHA, by the way, um, so that people won't fall off your house because that is a law that helps us live out the ethic of love your neighbor as yourself. It's not very loving if you have a really crappy constructed house and your friends keep falling off and breaking their legs. So God puts a law to have a, a fence around, to have a rail, right? So that is a law that is not the end-all, be-all. Like, if you don't have a, a handrail on your fence, you're going, you know, you're gonna be in trouble with God. It's, just, it's a law to protect the ethic of love your neighbor as yourself. The great missionary E. Stanley Jones is helpful here. Jones talks about the law as kind of an ark of God's will, an ark of God's ethics. God meets us where we are at, and he does that in every generation, and every time, and every culture. He, and that's called accommodation. God meets us where we are at. He's got these ideals that are his ethics, and he kind of knows we're not very good at keeping them. All right? And he starts with this at one place, but over time he reveals more and more of himself, more of his character, so that the laws will change as we get closer to the ethic. God's law points us toward the goal, and the goal is fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. So one simplistic, this is overly simplistic because I'm preaching and it's not a class and there's time limits and we're all from different backgrounds, right? So here's a simplistic way of thinking of it. There's three types of laws in scripture. There are the sacrificial laws, right? That's like animal sacrifices and grain offerings and forgiveness of sin offerings and thanksgiving offerings. These are sacrificial laws, category one. Category two are the ceremonial laws, like dietary laws and ritual washing laws. Remember, people used to get mad at Jesus. Why don't you wash your hands? Meanwhile, he's like saving people's lives, and they're hung up on him not washing his hands, right? So there's ceremonial laws. What is clean? What is unclean? All of that kind of stuff. That's the second category. And then the third category is the ethical laws, like the Ten Commandments, which which give, again, concreteness to God's ethics of love your neighbor as yourself, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Uh, Things like care for the immigrant among you, care for the poor and powerless, those are ethical laws that God gives people to help us love God and love neighbor. Now, let's consider E. Stanley Jones' idea of an ark in these three areas of law. First, sacrificial law. It taught us that sin is so grave that blood is required in order to atone or to cover over for our sin. The sacrificial system was in place to point people 
toward Jesus, but it never completely satisfied. Like every year, there was Yom Kippur, there was Day of Atonement. Every year, people had to atone for the sins of the community. Every time someone did a grave sin, they went to the temple and atoned for it with the blood of an animal or a grain offering or something like that. You were never like completely forgiven. That is, until Jesus fulfilled it. And the people familiar with sacrifice quickly understood what Jesus did by dying on the cross, and they said things like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They started to equate Jesus with the Passover lamb and and with the sacrificial imagery. And so they came to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, this was God giving himself on behalf of the entire world. Amen? All right. So the good news is that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial law. He did away with ritual sacrifice and the need for the temple because he was the final all-sufficient sacrifice. He broke down the barriers between creation and God, and so now we don't kill animals or, or meet God in stone temples, but we repent of our sin and we seek to live lives in Christ. And maybe you just need to hear it afresh today, but you in Christ are forgiven. He's fulfilled the sacrificial law. Then there's the ceremonial law. Once Jesus ascended into heaven and into his place of authority, his followers were given the Holy Spirit. They were to be set apart in character, not merely in externals. So Jesus said it's not what you put into your body that makes you impure. It's what comes out of your body that makes you impure. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you impure. So that means we can eat bacon. That's a ceremonial thing. Yeah, and Jesus gives us new hearts so that we are now set apart in following Jesus, not by what we eat and not by what we wear, not by what we refuse to eat or refuse to wear or how we wash our hands. Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. And finally, we get to the laws that lead us toward God's ethic for life. And this is where the rubber really meets the road in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is adamant that he's not giving us a new ethic. There's nothing deficient about God's ethic. Like if you could really love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill the law and the prophets. That's the ethic is the same from the very beginning. What Jesus was doing is recovering the true intents of the law. People had gotten so hung up on following the externals of the law that they forgot the ethic behind the law. And so take love your neighbor as yourself. Take that idea again. In the Hebrew scriptures, God says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that sounds like barbaric. It sounds horrible. That, that's not a way we should live today. But God said that in his law, in the scripture. So how did God change his mind? Well, at the time, that law was absolutely revolutionary. Because at that time, if you poked out the eye of your, you know, enemy family, that family would come and maybe poke out both of your eyes. And then you would retaliate by doing something worse. And it was this escalating tribal violence. And so God's ethic is to love your neighbor as yourself. But when you can't even like stop poking each other's eyes out, tell you what, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, sounds like it will nip that in the bud. (laughs) So this, this is a law to help get us toward the ethic of love neighbor as self. So 
the law, eye for an eye, was put into place to keep people from wiping each other out. But the ethic behind that law is treat others the way you want them to treat you. The scribes and Pharisees tried so hard to keep some of the laws, but lost the ethic behind the laws. Loving your neighbor doesn't include like finding pleasure and taking revenge on your enemies. It's about forgiveness, loving enemies. So Jesus fulfills the ethical law by reminding us of God's ethic and by giving us the spirit so we can actually make headway into living it out. Friends, that is such incredible news. Forgiveness, sacrificial laws fulfilled. Bacon, the ceremonial laws fulfilled. And a life worth living because of the Holy Spirit. We can begin to live live out the ethics of God. David's gonna put up a a sign here. Um, This sign goes to the beach, right? Um, There it is. That sounds like a place I'd like to go, especially in the dark of winter, uh, which is coming our way quickly. Um, The sign points to the beach, and it can give you hope that you're going in the right track, right? It points to something better. Okay, now let's look at the actual beach. And if I told you that you were there, you ought to be pretty happy about that. Something would be wrong if I showed you that and you're like, you know what? I'd rather stare at the sign that points to the beach. In a similar way, that's what Jesus is saying is all of the law and the prophets were a sign pointing to me, pointing to this new age, the age of the spirit, pointing to my fulfilling all of these things. And what he's saying to these people is like, the sign has served you well, but the beach is here. Come and play. Come to the beach. And, and, and I think so often, so often we get stuck staring at the sign and trying to either be obsessed with, with fulfilling the law ourselves, which we can't do, and that just makes us bitter, and we start to judge other people who don't do it as good as we do so that we can at least feel good about the parts we do, right? And some of you recognize, like, yeah, that's me. And then there's another thing that happens when you're not good at something. So you can get judgmental and competitive, or you can give up. And that fits another side of personalities probably represented here, where it's just like, I'm kind of done with this. I sort of like church because people are nice and we sing some songs. And I like the idea of Jesus forgiving me and I need that. But as far as like doing all the stuff he says, nah. And both of those extremes really lead us down a dark path. Because on the one hand, if we just throw our hands up in, in defeat, we don't get to enjoy the beach. We don't get to live into this fullness of life. And on the other hand, if we are just bitter and always thinking we're failing and always thinking everyone else are failing around us and judgmental, that's no way to live either. In the 20th verse, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees focused on carrying out specific aspects of the law. They were focused on outward behaviors. Surpassing the scribes and the Pharisees is to pay attention to the whole law arc. Tithing, serving, worshiping, yeah, all that stuff, but also 
caring for widows and orphans and living mercifully toward other people. It's not one or the other. It's the both and. The scribes and the Pharisees thought that they could be righteous before God through obedience to the outward functions of the law. Jesus says righteousness comes from within the heart. Um, What is it to keep and to teach every letter and stroke of the law? In chapter seven, Jesus is going to say, by the way, chapter seven is in the same sermon that he preaches, so there's continuity here. In everything, therefore, he says, treat people the same way you want them to treat you for this is the law and the prophets. It's not complicated, but it is hard. That's the life that Jesus came to give us. What a gift that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial and ceremonial laws. He's broken down the dividing wall that separates us from God and from one another. And what a gift that Jesus empowers us to live a life where we can grow in loving God and loving neighbor. Next week, we're gonna dive into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna talk about how Jesus invites us to live out the fulfilled life. But for now, let's revel in the good news that Jesus makes this possible, this fulfilled life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this good word that you proclaimed, that Matthew put pen to parchment and we now have. And I pray that it would penetrate deep in our hearts. That we would trust you, Lord. That you have fulfilled the sacrificial law and the ceremonial law that you empower us to begin to fulfill this ethical law, to live it out in your strength. I I pray that my sisters and brothers and I would experience deeper fulfillment, deeper fullness of life as we walk in your grace and trust you for what is possible.